Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Such a blessing to sing praises to the Lord and to brave the elements and come hear what God has to say, to have fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, it is a great privilege and blessing. And uh, We'll be in Hebrews chapter 7, if you'll turn there. One announcement, we will have Friday week. It's very quick, very soon we have Good Friday. So uh, I was a bit shocked to see that it was so upon us, but it is. So uh, Friday week, 10 a.m. here, or is it 9 a.m.? 9 a.m., sorry, yes, 9 a.m. here, uh, Good Friday, Friday week. So that should be a blessing, and then Sunday at the normal time. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you do work, and you are working in our hearts, in this world, and you are good. We just praise you, Lord. We're so unworthy to even say your name, to sing praises to you, and yet you've made us accepted in the brethren because of what Jesus has done, that you have, you call us beloved. You've adopted us as your children, having placed our faith in you, and it's you who's given us that faith. And so, Lord, all glory and honor to your name. Thank you so much for this opportunity to gather, to proclaim your word, and pray that you would fill us with your spirit. You give us understanding of your truth and that we would rejoice to praise you and walk in your ways in Jesus' name. Amen. God's Word, it's so uh, powerful, it's so relevant, and it, it's for much more than just giving us facts about God or future events or wisdom for life. It, it has all those things, uh, but it exposes us. It shows us how we're wrong and how we are to repent and become more like Jesus, and it's He who does that sanctifying work in us. And every time we read the Bible, it sh we should come to it humbly, not thinking how much we already know, or like, yeah, I get that, I understand that. And, but to really better align ourselves with God's truth and who he is, what he's doing right now. The Hebrews, it says, were dull from much hearing. They heard the truth a lot, and it dulled them. They, it wasn't really having the reaction that it should have, and it's true for us too. We can hear the truth, but we can still be dull. It's like, uh, we can shutter ourselves in with our current knowledge, um, kind of cocooning ourselves with passages that are familiar or, or that make us feel comfortable. And we can be content with our current faith in God and knowing that we are heading for salvation. And God would have us come out of that cocoon. He would have us see him in a different light. Um, see him according to how he is, not just how we have thought of him previously, but how he actually is and what he's working today. And that caterpillar in the cocoon is kind of a picture of where the Hebrews were. They had cocooned themselves in the law, so to speak. They found it difficult to abandon. I don't think caterpillars can think or can have longings or wonderings like human beings can. But it's like the law became part of their identity. It was their way of relating to God. It was whom, what made them different from the other peoples of the world because God had chosen them. He had commanded them. He had appeared to them. And so they were intent on following him. God didn't call the Hebrews after following Christ to live like Gentiles. But the new covenant ushered in a new reality that Jesus was the end of the law to those who believe. It's like when we sing, you know, we raise holy hands. To them, it's like my hands are holy because I washed them. 
They've been sanctified, but we are holy, not because we've washed our hands, but because we have the Holy Spirit living inside us. He's purified us from within. It's like the Pharisees could only wash the outside of the cup, but with Jesus, a new thing was done. We're like the inside is purged, the inside is clean, and his presence fills us. So the law had its weaknesses. It was unprofitable in a sense, and so God overruled it. He annulled it so that we could come to him through Christ and faith. By grace, we have been saved through faith, not of ourselves. And we have a Savior who lives today. We talk about a lot about what Jesus has done. We talk about what he will do, but we don't talk so much about what he's doing right now, that we have a Savior today in Jesus. Not just someone who will save us, but someone who is saving us, who will see us through to his kingdom. Hebrews 7, starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, this chapter is picking up what we've already spoken about for the previous few weeks, that uh, Melchizedek, the king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, it was a type for what Christ is the antitype. So one is the hint and the other is the reality. Melchizedek, he's this mysterious figure. He's only mentioned in two times in the Old Testament. One time when Abraham came back from defeating the kings and he celebrated the victory and says, blessed him. It's in Genesis 14, and then he is mentioned again in Psalm 110. There's no genealogy. We don't know who his father or who his mother was. We don't know when his rule began, when his life ended. We don't really know anything about him. We just know this one scene where he comes out to Abraham, celebrating, bringing uh, wine and bread, and receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him. He's a curiosity because he's not a Jew. He was there 400 plus years before the law was even given. So he's a Gentile who is both king and high priest of the living God, the same God as Abraham. The law had not been given, but he was both king and priest. His name was translated King of Righteousness and King of Peace, and it alluded to Jesus, whom God would send. And this chapter establishes that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. He's not from the Aaronic priesthood. He's not from the line of Levi. He's of the tribe of Judah. He's of the order of Melchizedek. In film, you see a lot of foreshadowing, right? It's a little hint that the director, it's like a little something to get your attention. Like, that's a little odd. And sometimes it's so subtle you don't realize it. And, but when the movie's over and you're looking up foreshadowing, you're like, oh yeah, it's so obvious. Why couldn't I see that before? That, that this was saying what was going to happen. I should have been expecting that ending, but it still threw me for a loop. I, I never saw it coming. And that's like what God's doing with Melchizedek. He had given this foreshadowing of the high priest and king who would come, a king of righteousness, a king of peace, and he's, he's showing his intent what he was alluding at, and 
bringing focus now onto Christ through Melchizedek, saying Christ is of the order of Melchizedek. You guys didn't pick that up, but here you go. This is what was actually happening. Hebrews 7, verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. That's quite a mouthful, but we're going to follow this logic through. Uh, Hopefully, we're all tracking with what he's saying. So Abraham, he's the father. He's the greatest of all the Jews. He was the father of them. There was no one before him, but they said, Abraham, he received the promise of God, right? To you and your descendants, I will give this land. To Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Now, Abraham showed how great Melchizedek was when he tithed to him. That means he gave him a tenth of the spoils from the battle. He was not obligated to do so out of the law, but he did so because he saw him as his spiritual superior, and he was worthy to receive those tithes. Interestingly, right after that, the king of Sodom offered to give Abraham everything. He's, I'll take all the spoil for yourself. Just give me the people. And he says, I'm not taking anything from you because I don't want you to say that you've made me rich. I'm not going to even take a shoelace from you. So you see, Melchizedek receives the tithes, bless Abraham. Abraham has offered all the spoil, and he says, I'm taking none of it. He refused to receive it. He didn't want to make a deal with the king of Sodom. Melchizedek received it and blessed him. The law commanded people under the law to bring a tithe, whom the sons of Levi were responsible to receive. They were authorized by God to receive them. So the fact Melchizedek received it and blessed him, it showed he was authorized by God to receive it. And he says, in a sense, Levi was in Abraham when he tithed. So Abraham gave to him. Uh, The priesthood, therefore, of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Aaron because Aaron tithed to Abraham, tithed to Melchizedek through Abraham. It says in verse 7, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. We say God bless you because God is the greatest. He is able to give the blessing. If I say I bless you, it doesn't mean anything. But if God blesses you, he's the only one who really can. It says in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The creator is greater and better than his creation, right? We can bless the Lord because he's already blessed us right at the beginning. He blessed man and woman. And so we, having been blessed, can bless the Lord. When we sit down to eat a meal, 
we bless, give a blessing over it because we have received that blessing from God and we're acknowledging that he has given it to us. And he connected his blessing in response to tithing in Mal- Malachi 3.10. So for the Jews who kept the law, when they brought their tithes in, he said, there's a blessing when you do that. In Malachi 3.10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, said the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. So having been victorious, having acknowledged uh, Melchizedek's uh, priesthood and that he was the king, there was that tithe given, the blessing received, and he had no desire. He was like, I'm full. There's no need for me to, make a, to take anything from the king of Sodom. So a principle we see established here is that the ancestor is greater than the descendants, right? If there was no Abraham, there would be no Isaac. There would be no Jacob. The writer of Hebrews says, mortal men, they are qualified to receive tithes, and the eternal living God receives them. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. The priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than that of Aaron. That's, that's the logical progression. Continuing in verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Perfection never came through the law or attempts to keep it. Being sanctified, being anointed, did not make the high priest without sin. The priest still had to give sacrifices for his own sin and the sins of the people. The law could not make anyone perfect. It just exposed their sinfulness. Another priesthood was needed. It was prophesied the Messiah would be of the order of Melchizedek. It was necessary the law change, the priesthood change. And the verse spoken of is in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, in our day, it's like, what do you want to do? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that as a career? People have their preferences and opinions. But if you wanted to be a priest, that was a very, very small group of people, and no one, they did not take applications. You had to be of the tribe of Levi. You had to be a direct descendant of Aaron the high priest for you to even be considered for the role of high priest. The Lord Jesus Christ, however, he's of the tribe of Judah. Since the priesthood and the law of Moses was inadequate, we're going to see that it was weak and unprofitable. There was also a change of the law needed. You guys understand that the ruling authority has the power to change the law, right? They have the power to change the law. For the Jews, the law literally was written in tablets of stone. It was unchanging. It almost at a point became God to them because it told them what to do and what to avoid, how to approach God. And they looked to the law to guide them and to show them how to be righteous. 
The law was good, yet God has the power to change the law. It's like the government that issues visas can cancel them. The government who certifies marriages can annul them. The posted speed limit, it can be overruled because there's workers on the road, and for their safety, it's now 40 Ks, regardless if they're there or not, right? You're like driving on this toll road, and you're like, oh, 40? Why? There is nobody here, but that's the law. It has been overruled because the government has the power to do that. It doesn't matter what you think it should be. It doesn't matter if it makes sense to you. That's the law, and you could be ticketed if you're going above that 40. God is the ruling authority over Israel, over the whole world, not the law. The God who made the law can change the law. Continuing in verse 15, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Melchizedek, he's the first high priest mentioned in the Bible of God. Not by the commandment of law, right? He was there before the law was given, hundreds of years in advance. And it's fitting that one would come like him in righteousness, in peace, who remains a priest continually. And that was that illusion. Like with Melchizedek, we don't know how long he was alive. He had no father, no mother, no genealogy. So he's, his priesthood is still intact, and Jesus is of that order, an everlasting and unchangeable priesthood. One who is priest continually. And this is a really big deal. In establishing Jesus as a great high priest, there's a twofold impact here. It says the former commandment to anoint priests of the line of Aaron, that was annulled. And we have a better hope through Christ by whom we draw near to God by faith. After Jesus rose to heaven, he ascended. Believing Jews, they continued to relate to God according to the law. They kept the oral traditions. They kept the washings and the feasts and fasts. And many of them continued to relate to him in a legalistic, work-based relationship. And we can do the same. We can feel like, I want the blessing of God that I don't have, and so therefore I am going to tithe to get it. I am going to fast to get it. I am going to do these spiritual disciplines to obtain what I want to get God's attention. And, and I feel like I'm cursed. I feel like there's a problem. Or we're on a search for esoteric knowledge. We're like, I want something that, there's something I don't yet know. If, if I just learned that, then I could be out of this trouble. Then I could know what to do. Or we relate to him about how we're feeling or our current circumstances. Well, God must not like him. God must not like me because of what I'm going through right now. We have all these ideas about who God is and what he's doing, but not according to his scripture, not according to who he is. And that's why we need God's word, to straighten our minds out, to, to reveal the wrong ways that we think about God, the wrong way that we, as human beings, try to approach God. 
And that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing for the Jews because they were still trying to approach him through the law, trying to please him by doing something rather than realizing what Jesus had done for them, what he was doing for them right then. Could you please turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9? And this is speaking of Jesus. And this, this is the trap that early believers throughout the New Testament fell into. They trusted in Jesus for their salvation, but then they relied upon their works to earn good standing before God. They fell back into that rut. About like, well, I need to do more. I need to try harder. I need to do better. I need to be better. To think that that's the way, through their effort, they could please God. Has anyone else fallen into that performance trap before? I know I have. I have certainly been there. Colossians 2 verse 9, speaking of Jesus, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In one sense, every believer is a work in progress, right? But in another sense, we are complete in him. You are already complete. There is nothing more that you need for life, salvation, or godliness because that's found in Christ through faith. Now, the Jews put a great deal of emphasis, and they're talking about this in Colossians, on circumcision, that they needed to be circumcised to be acceptable before God, to enter into that covenant with Abraham. So they were focused on removing a bit of skin to partake in that covenant. But Jesus came to, it says, put off the body of the sins of the flesh, that you would be reborn, that you would be completely cleansed, transformed, made alive, baptized with him, raised from the dead with him. It's not a picture of renovation but of transformation of something that was dead that's now alive it's not self-improvement it's the picture of jesus being crucified but being raised in eternal glory like there's a huge transformation that's taken place we've been alive been made alive together with christ we've been forgiven of all of our sin and that handwriting of requirements do you know what that is that's the law the handwriting of requirements that condemned everyone, that exposed everyone as sinners, it's been taken out of the way, it's been nailed to the cross with Jesus, like it's been killed. It has uh, the nails that went through Jesus' hands, they went right through the law and pinned it to the cross, and it should not be resurrected. Jesus, he has been made alive, the law is not to be made alive. It could not be, could never be. That law has been annulled, it can no longer be weaponized to condemn us because we're not keeping it. Because that's not the way that we draw near to God anymore, because Jesus has come. The law remains good for diagnosing sin. It is exceptional at that. It is, it is an expert at showing us our faults 
and our failures, but it cannot save us. It cannot help us be righteous. So as Christians, we're not to relate to God through the law, but by grace through faith. Hebrews 7.18, it says the law was annulled because it was weak and unprofitable. It was very strong at pointing out sin, but powerless to enable mankind to keep it. So it's a good uh, guide for us during our lives, but it's unprofitable to give eternal life, right? No one can be saved through trying to keep the law because that's the best you'll ever do. You'll never keep it. Only Jesus could fulfill it. The law is vast, the law is timeless, but it's hopeless to deliver souls from death. We read, the law made nothing perfect, yet on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And I think the church has really struggled over the years to, to know what to do with the law. There's some people that revert back to it to think that we need to keep the Sabbaths, we shouldn't wear fabrics that have, you know, mixed cotton, you know, cotton polyester 60-40 blend, that if we really want to glorify God, we will keep the law and we'll, we'll eat kosher and do these things as a way to please him when we've never been commanded to do that. Um, or we just rubbish the whole thing, just throw it out entirely. We, we're not under the law, so we don't read the law. We don't pay attention to what the law says, and therefore we miss the very thing that's going to expose the sin of sinners so that they can be saved and come to Jesus. So we've hijacked the whole thing in throwing out the law. No, we need the law. We need the law to realize how sinful we are, but that trying to do the law is not the way to get to God because that's been annulled for that means, which is void. It has no power. Cannot condemn you because now we have Christ if you're in him. Romans 3, 19 and 20, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So by trying to do the law, you are not justified. You are not innocent of your previous guilt. By the law is the knowledge of sin. That's its very functional purpose for us and for unbelievers today. It's like the law, it's compared to a schoolmaster who brought the Jews to Christ. So um, it's kind of like the kid has been dropped off at school and, mu and mom and dad are there to pick up the child at the end of the day and the teacher leads the child by the hand to his or her parents and there's that handoff that happens. That's what has happened with the law. The law, it led us to Jesus. It showed us our sin, that we could not be righteous before God, that we, we were headed for destruction and hell. And now we've been handed off to Christ, who is righteous, who is holy, who fills us with his spirit. He changes us. So now we, we can follow God beyond the letter of the law, beyond just trying to keep up externals, and he's dealing with our hearts now. And if the heart's right, you know that cursing? It stops. The lusts of the flesh, they're cut off because now we, we are relating to God through the Spirit who lives within us, not just us in the flesh trying to do what we can't do. The weakness of the law was nobody could keep it. You know, millions of people have tried to keep it. All have failed, except one, that's Christ. 
who fulfilled it. It it revealed everyone to be sinners and the wages of sin is death. So God chose to annul the law as a means of drawing near to him. So its weakness and unprofitability would be overcome by Christ whom he has sent. Listen to the words for annulling. To make void by competent authority, to abolish, reduce to nothing, obliterate. That's powerful what God has done. We draw near to God through faith in Jesus Christ. He makes us holy by grace through faith. It's a gift of salvation that we receive from him and that we walk in. The law, it gave commands so people could avoid physical death, but Jesus tasted death and he rose from the grave so we can be born again, so we can be justified, so we can be deemed righteous and become God's kids. He is our only hope of drawing near to him. And now we have the Holy Spirit who is the down payment of the proof of our salvation, who lives within us, who changes us, who speaks to us. Moving on to Hebrews 7, 20. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So God doubled down on Jesus being that king and great high priest, by establishing him with an oath. There was no oath spoken over Aaron or any of his descendants who were made high priests, but God did with Jesus. He said, the Lord has sworn, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And he was unique in that He never sinned. He never needed to offer sacrifices for his own sin, but he offered himself once for all so that he could save all who come to him by faith. And Jesus, so there are all these priests who were a priest one day, but then they died. They were um, kicked out of office for some reason. They fell into sin. But Jesus is not that way. He has an unchangeable priesthood, an everlasting priesthood where he is established right now. I think we need to focus more, and I need to focus more, on what Jesus is doing right now for me. Not just what he's done, that's so important. Not just what he will do someday, but that I have a Savior right now who, and we're going to talk about that, what he is doing. We know that he's preparing a place for us. We know that when he ascended into heaven, angels told the disciples that the same way this Jesus ascended, he will someday return. So we know he's coming back. But these verses tell us even more about what Jesus is doing right now. It says, he continues as a high priest. Now, for a Hebrew, having a priest was so important for them to approach God. That priest was a necessary link to have a representative before God because they could not come near to him. Can you imagine bringing a sacrifice to Jerusalem and there was no priest that day? He had a problem in Bethlehem and had gone home. You you cannot offer that sacrifice. You have to wait until the high priest returns. Or 
perhaps uh, in the days of Judah and their departure from the Lord, and you go up to the temple to offer your sacrifice, and there's no fire on the altar, and the doors are boarded up shut. How can you draw near to God? You can't. You cannot. It is impossible because the law requires that high priest to be sanctified, to offer the sacrifices, to pray, to do the morning and evening sacrifice, to have the lamp burning, to have the incense going, to do the drink offerings, the wave offering, the heave offering, all these different offerings, and and he's not there. So you can't draw near to God, no matter how hard you try. But Jesus, he has an unchangeable priesthood, an everlasting priesthood. It says... Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's a savior today. He's not just a savior someday in the future. He's a savior right now if you will come to him. And we're able to live for him because Jesus lives continually and his priesthood is unchanging. Listen to this in Romans 8, 33 and 34. It says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is at, even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So we have God on the throne. We have Jesus making intercession for us. Who is going to enter that courtroom and going to make an accusation that will stick against us when Jesus has done everything to save us? justify us, cleanse us, predestined us to be with him someday. Well, there's people who try. Not every single uh, complaint that comes before the court is worth being heard, right? There's what's called a frivolous lawsuit or a vexatious lawsuit in Australia. And the definition of vexatious is causing or tending to cause annoyance, frustration, or worry, having little chance of succeeding in law, but intended to annoy someone or cause problems for them. So there have been people who have been bringing vexatious claims against other people, and they're not allowed to use the justice system anymore until they have permission to do so. So it's like, I would suggest a lot of the accusations that we hear or the opinions that we lay to heart, they're not in the heavens at all. It's in our own heads. It's our own negative self-talk. Instead of realizing who is on the throne, Who is speaking on our behalf? Who is interceding for me right now? It's Jesus. And the accusations of Satan, they can be frivolous. We end up feeling guilt and shame. And we settle out of court by a return to the law when the case is closed. It has no legal merit at all. We're not to settle. We're to stand in Christ by faith. What he has done. When we sin, we are called to confess our sins and to repent. But let's not imagine that our salvation, salvation is tenuous, that it's hinging upon how I'm doing today or how I'm feeling, because Jesus has done it. You are complete in him, believer. Today, Jesus is able to save all. He is able to save to the uttermost everyone who comes to him, even you and me. And there's Christians who are stricken with sins past, Burdened with frustration because they feel powerless over sin today. And, and rightly so, we should feel powerless over sin. Since when have we had mastery over sin? Never, or else we could save ourselves. We need Jesus. We need him to save us. 
We need him to strengthen us. We need him to, to gift us and to help us and to lift us up. The law has been nailed to the cross. Our righteousness is by faith. So we knuckle down and try harder. When we fail, we can be depressed and we give up. Contentment, it can be a foreign ideal because we, our lives and our peace and our rest is, is conditional upon how we're feeling and what's going on in our lives or in the world. And this is not theoretical because I have lived this. I can live this. And I know that you can too. Let's realize who Jesus is and what he's doing right now. Our risen Savior. Verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Jesus is the perfect fit for our high priest. He's set apart. He's holy He's innocent, he's pure, he's incorruptible. He's a unique human being without sin. Saul, he was chosen because he was head and shoulders taller than anyone else in Israel. Well, look how high Jesus is. It says he's higher than the heavens. That's why he's a perfect high priest for me and for you. And he doesn't have to, like a priest, offer up sacrifices for himself and then for the people. He once for all accomplished it on Calvary. And the law, it says, appointed high priests who had weakness, weaknesses of body, weaknesses of mind, weakness of morality and integrity. They were corruptible, but by God's oath, Jesus was appointed after the order of Melchizedek. He did not come from that line. He came from this divine line, the Son of God. And like when Jesus is lumped in with other religious leaders, that should never happen. That, that is ridiculous because he's not comparable to any man, any ruler, anything. There's no one that compares to Jesus. No great philosopher, no great thinker. They do not belong in the same sentence with each other because Jesus is the Son of God. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is our great high priest. And this is what makes Christianity unique in that it's faith in Jesus Christ that matters, not by what we try to do or accomplish. It's he who is righteous, he who lives, and we live because of him. All who desire a blessing from God, do you realize the blessing that you have in Jesus? We all want a blessing. But know that he has blessed you, he is blessing you, and he will always bless you. Turn as we close to Ephesians 1 verse 3. We talk about God blessing us, but here we see blessing God, and we can only bless him because he blesses us. It's not a blessing that's old and dusty and could be lost or forgotten. It's because he's blessing us now, we can bless him. Ephesians 1, 
verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the Beloved. We are richly blessed in Christ. He's made us to be holy and without blame before him. We don't deserve this. This is by his grace. We have been accepted. Jesus has been perfected forever. In him we're predestined for perfection, for eternity, because Jesus has that unchangeable priesthood. He always lives to make intercession for us, and we live eternally because of him. Praise our holy king, our great high priest, a king of righteousness, a king of peace. God has made a living way for us to come to him, not by trying to keep words written on a tablet of stone, but by grace through faith in Christ. And may you rejoice as he works in you and through you and begins to change our mindset out of the trying to earn favor or acceptance with God when he's already given it to you. Let's enter into that and rejoice. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for Jesus, whom you have sworn with an oath that he is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And thank you for the new life that you've given us, Lord, not just to wash our hands or to keep uh, ceremonial rites, but that you cause us to be born again. You bring us into your kingdom by grace through faith. And I pray we would rest in that place, Lord. We would rejoice and be free from the obligations to please man, our obligations to try to measure up to you, to relate to you, but that we would come before you, Lord, rejoicing in your grace, your forgiveness, your goodness, that we would celebrate you and do those good works that you've called us to. Thank you, Lord, that we cannot work to earn salvation or forgiveness, yet we can receive that gift and then labor for your kingdom doing those things that you say to us through the Holy Spirit and your word so that you can be glorified. And I pray that this, this word would sink into our hearts. You would change the way we think and that we'd honor and glorify you now and forever in Jesus' name. Amen.